You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 13th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. <laughs> and Evan Bernstein. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hey, do you want to know what happened 280 years ago today? I can't wait. Yes. It was the passing of Cotton Mather. February 13th, oh. Very good author. Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather. The very the, good author. We all know him famous. from his connection to the Salem Witch Trials. That's right. Yeah. You just sounded so excited when you started. I thought it was going to be something, you know, fun. It was, yeah, it was anticlimactic. It was a little anticlimactic. Jay, how was Sweden? Oh, my God. It was incredible. How were the Swedish girls? Swedish women are absolutely stellar. Beautiful country. The food was fantastic. The work aspect of it for me was was off the hook. Uh, I had a great, great time, and I met I met two really, really cool people. I'm really happy I went. Good. Oh, that sounds great. The only thing I have to report is that out of everybody I met and all the things I saw and all the places that I was at, the only thing pseudoscientific I came across was an American. Is that right? Uh, yep. uh, Not a lot of pseudoscience in the streets over there in Sweden. No. Those bastards. I don't think so. No, not, none. I didn't see anything. I didn't see a hint of anything. Well, welcome back, Jay. Good to have you back. We have an interview coming up later in the uh, in the show with P.Z. Myers, the author of Ferengula. Uh, but before then, we're going we're to do some news items. Uh, first, a quick news item about bat evolution. This is uh, one of the points that creationists have been harping on recently because we don't have a lot of fossil evidence for the evolution of bats from other mammals. So it's a gap. It's, a, it's currently a gap in, in our fossil evidence. So, you know, creationists like to point at gaps. You know, in the past, they pointed at the gap between terrestrial mammals and whales. That's been nicely filled in. So now they have to lie through their teeth if they're going to point to that one. And they do. They still point to the the gaps in the bat, in bat evolution. In fact, about a year ago, Patrick Buchanan uh, wrote an article, you know, against evolution, and he pointed to the gap in the bat fossils as like the big evidence against evolution. Well, coming up in the uh, the next issue of Nature is a description of a of a, of the earliest bat ancestor yet discovered, and this answers a question that has been unresolved. Bats of course, both fly and use echolocation. And so far, uh, up to this new specimen, all of the um, an- bat ancestors had both of these abilities. They both had echolocation and flying. And so scientists had no way of knowing what came first. Did they fly before they had echo- echolocation or did they have echolocation prior to being able to fly? Well, now they, have, uh, they describe a specimen that is approximately 25.5 million years old. The species name is... Onico nictiridae finii, I might have butchered that, uh, which means the clawed bat that was able to fly but did not have echolocation. So that resolves that question, probably. Of course, this could be uh, not on the main line of bat evolution, so one fossil hardly, usually doesn't, doesn't completely resolve these questions, but that, that suggests strongly that bats could fly before they had echolocation. So f- one more gap 
in the fossil record film. That was the last one. That's the last gap, right? <laughs> That's the last one. Yeah, there's none left. Yeah, yeah, I think that more. gave us two cool. more. Yeah, or this created two more. <laughs> yeah. Two more gaps. Damn. Steve. Yeah. Yes, Jay. We must fill the bat gap. <laughs> we must not have a bat fossil gap. Name that movie, anybody. Now, of course, evolution predicted that this fossil would would be out there for us to find. That's an excellent point, Evan. It's not like we're just finding random fossils with random morphology out there. Uh, we predicted that we would find a primitive bat that had that was missing one of the two key morphological features of bats, both echo, echolocation and flight, and that's what we found. God, evolution makes predictions that turn out to be true. Gee, that's yeah, only hundreds of thousands that's of crazy them. crazy talk. <laughs> The next news item, uh, this is a bit of silly news. This one, a lot of our UK listeners sent this to us. The Easington Council, uh, it, was, it was reported, employed a medium in order to remove a ghost from a public residence. So apparently they were getting some complaints from the residents that, that the place was haunted. And they decided to hire a medium to exercise the spirit away out of this housing project. That's so pathetic. Blows my mind. So the people basically were scared about the house being haunted, and they, but they wouldn't leave? They wouldn't leave the house? Well, they were complaining about leaving. And the, I guess the council didn't want them to leave because it would have cost a lot of money, red tape. So they, they came up with a low-cost alternative. This is this is what they're claiming that they uh, they saved you know this cost what it was one hundred and twenty pounds which turns into about two hundred and thirty five dollars. Then they said to re- relocate them it would have cost hundreds or maybe thousands of dollars of taxpayer uh, money uh, to relocate them. So to them this was a this was a win win. So they were happy about that. But my my attitude is well why why couldn't they have used a few bucks and tried to come up with an alternate explanation for these people. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that have been a little better? Right. Yeah, or like one of the cheapest things they could have done was basically just buy a baseball bat and beat the crap out of them. Yeah, that would have been cheaper. <laughs> Slightly more violent. I think it's called a cricket stick over there, not a baseball bat. Quite, quite right. <laughs> a cricket. I think it's a cricket bat, actually. Yeah. Not a cricket stick. Oh, how topical. Right. Well, yeah, it, it's absurd. I mean, we ran into this here in Connecticut, actually, a few years ago when the Connecticut state government paid to have a feng shui and, and, uh, analyst consult for a public building. It's, just, it's terrible when a government endorses you know, abject superstition or, su- or pseudoscience you know, by paying for it like this. You know, they, they really have a responsibility not to do that. And you're right, Bob. They could have. There were all, there were alternatives. It wasn't just bow to their superstitions and fears or or cater to them. They could have called in, you know, more scientific investigators. Or, you know, how about just a counselor? You know, somebody to tell them that you know this, may, these fears maybe perhaps are unfounded. The other thing is that often that these strategies don't work because you know, as we say, there are no haunted places. There are only haunted people. Uh, the belief in in ghosts and in being haunted, you know, is something that's obviously embedded in these people's in their belief system. I don't know that one encounter with a medium is gonna is gonna solve that problem. They want to believe it. I mean, you know, they believe it to such a degree that they were they were willing to uh, you know have one psychic come in and and dissuade them and say everything's fine now. Like that's yeah. I mean, it's probably only a temporary fix. You know, is my point. They should have explored other options because now this also sets a precedent. Um, so everyone who who thinks that they have an entity in their house, you know, can have the government subsidize mediums to exercise them. It's, it's a very bad precedent. 
Well, let's go on to the next news item. This is a, uh, a new acupuncture study, which actually wasn't an acupuncture study. It was a review of acupuncture studies. Uh, that is, headlines purport the conclusion of the study to be that acupuncture increases the probability of fertilization, successful fertilization, with IVF or in vitro fertilization. And I've, we've spoken about these studies before in the context of, you know, how to interpret the medical research and typically how, especially when dealing with controversial topics like acupuncture, uh, the lay press typically gets the bottom line wrong. So here's the bottom line with this. The authors, uh, I think, really did a bad job of discussing their conclusions. They concluded that, you know, there is something to this, that there was, when they review all the data in these studies, that there was an effect there, that there was a higher rate of, of fertilization in those receiving acupuncture. But if you look even just a little deeper into the data, you could see that that's actually not what, what this study shows. They reviewed studies that were done in China and several countries in Europe. If you look at all, you know, of course, like, like all systematic reviews or meta-analyses, there are some criteria for entry into the review. You needed to have certain size, you know, certain, certain quality of study design, etc. So with the studies that they looked at, all of the studies that were done in Europe were actually negative. There was no effect. They were just dead negative. The only studies that were positive, and, the, and, the only, and these are the studies that make the, 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 all the numbers positive when you, when you combine them, were studies that had two features in common. One is that they were done in China, and two is that the baseline success rate of IVF in these clinics was lower than the average or what is typical. So they were starting at a lower success rate. And then as the clinics later introduced acupuncture, their success rate crept up to closer to what is, a, is typical for an IVF clinic. So they actually didn't show higher success rates than clinics that weren't doing acupuncture. They just showed a lower success rate previously. So that could be, that alleged effect could be explained, well, one on on the basis that you know, belief in acupuncture is very embedded in the culture in China. It's not so much in Europe. And two, that these clinics just got better at doing IVF. And the, and the later data with acupuncture reflected just the fact that their techniques were better. So if you really look at this data, it's basically negative. This shows that acupuncture does not increase the success rate of IVF, and yet the lay press reported these news at the bottom line of this review as if it, it did show an effect for acupuncture. So, you know, we've been here before. It's bad data, bad analysis, and the lay press got the bottom line wrong, as did the authors of this study, who, who clearly were proponents. The next news item is a quick UFO piece, this one from Canada. Uh, and Evan, you looked into this one. Yeah, I did. Definitely file this one under weird for the week. So there was an article uh, from the website Access News, and the headline read, Are UFOs using mind control? Alberta oil sands said to be part of the plot. So I read into this a little bit, and apparently what's happening in Alberta is that um, there are more and more UFO sightings, and uh, one of the more interesting reports uh, came through an article by a newspaper called The Canadian, which published an article about UFO mind control and how there's a theory supported by one Mr. or Dr. John Lash, 
who uh, is claiming that extraterrestrial mind control is responsible for the mining that is occurring at uh, this place called the Alberta Oil Sands. Now, what the Alberta Oil Sands are are a um, large surface mining operation in which they are um, taking out bitumen, which is like an oil tar substance, which can be used to refine as, uh, as crude oil. It's like a crude oil. It's, you know, they're able to extract the oil from it. And it's a really large operation. It's taking up, you know, it's, uh, it's one of the largest uh, mining operations currently ha- in progress on the Earth. So what Dr. John Lash is claiming is that the aliens have set up a virtual reality uh, in this area <laughs> by which they are um, doing all this mining and the aliens have have uh, controlled the situation so that people don't believe that very bad things associated with mining, you know, like damage to the environment and so forth, uh, are occurring. And this is all part of an alien plot using uh, virtual reality technology. And these aliens are also controlling the minds of the uh, the prime minister and other people high up in the Canadian government to say all the right things and to ensure that the process is going on without any kind of hi- any kind of hindrance or revealing of the truth of what's really going on with the with these aliens apparently the aliens are controlling all these people in the highest forms of the Canadian government so huh. very very interesting i hate when that ha- i hate when that happens yeah, that's that's but that's a bizarre in a uh like up the dose of his medication kind of bizarre. Yeah, I mean l- listen you know. to this and you'll get an idea. The guy believes that uh an inorganic cyborg-like artificial intelligence, which is in quotes, that has sought to use its mechanical consciousness to warp the quality of survival instincts of humanity. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely way off the medication right there. What's his evidence for all of this, other than his paranoid delusions? He found a gum wrapper. And- uh, Dr. Dr. Lash is a uh, student and uh, professor of uh, mythology and ancient belief systems. And uh, ah, he believes... So he's an expert in fiction. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. He, he refers to um, Gnosticism. That's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, mm-hmm. Gnosticism, which in itself is a very old kind of belief system that incorporates lots of um, ancient belief systems from Babylonian times, from, from the Christian era, the pre-Christian era. And it claims that there were people back in that time who had the truth. There were people who knew everything um, that you know, the majority of people just had no way of knowing. But these people, yeah. they knew everything that was going on, and amongst the things that they professed to know is that effectively alien intelligence does exist out there, and it has an influence on the happenings of man and mankind. Yeah, it sounds like a nice, unfalsifiable, completely self-contained belief. Yeah, totally system. unfalsifiable. Totally immune to evidence, because you know any evidence that contradicts this well that was obviously that's a virtual reality evidence planted by the aliens and any evidence that's lacking of course is being concealed by the aliens using mind control and virtual reality so we wouldn't expect there to be a lick of evidence for this whole belief system well this is just like psychic bigfoot you know explains everything right there's another aspect of this story that that i delved into um and again going back to the canadian national newspaper that and the and the author of this article peter tremblay uh who who reported on this now um the canadian national newspaper is by all rights a socialist 
progressive newspaper focusing on things like mm-hmm. environmental awareness and consciousness and so forth. But this guy really takes it to the extreme. So he is a um, extreme environmentalist, and he is taking yeah. the teachings and the writings of this Dr. John Lash to further his position that they should not be strip mining this area of Alberta. Right. Specifically, amongst other things, not only because of the environmental damage that it's apparently, you know, or the environmental impact that this that this has on the ecosystem. So he's using this to promote a, a ideological political agenda? That's right. So he's incorporating what Dr. John Lash says <laughs> and, and, and presenting it as fact and incorporating it in, into his argument. So he's taking advantage of the mentally ill. Is that basically I guess so. <laughs> I mean, well, that seems like a flawed strategy to me because, you know, if you <laughs> want to squander any legitimacy or respect for your position, then this, you know, then latch on to, you know, this kind of wackiness, you know. So he's just tainting his own position by by tying it to something so absurd. So what what he what he argues is and Dr. Lash argues and this journalist also is promoting is the idea that the the illusion is that we are that that the aliens are giving us is that we are becoming prosperous and and more wealthy by doing this process but nefariously you know they're mm-hmm. what they're really trying to do is to make us undermine our own uh, environment so that humans suffer because they're just evil for their own nefarious purposes who knows really why they don't never really get into that but he writes mm-hmm. they represented prosperity of the alberta tar sands or the alberta oil sands project like other such vaunted projects in the global economy has been created through a kind of three-dimensional simulation the economy the global economy is an apparent three-dimensional simulation analogous to a video game the artificial alien intelligence identified by the Gnostics has used the basic principles associated with the motivational virtual reality feature of a video game and projected that onto a three-dimensional context on top of our planet Earth. So, you know, effectively mm-hmm. what they're saying, you know, what he's saying is, here, the aliens are, 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 have totally basically brainwashed us and set up something that is untestable <laughs> nothing we you know nothing that we could ever detect if we wanted to because we're not gnostics we don't know everything innately like real gnostics do and we're pawns in the game we're totally playing into into the aliens yeah. hands well don't you guys think this is a really interesting example of the spectrum that pseudoscience can occupy you know it's one thing yeah. for someone to be selling some sort of snake oil we're, we're all the way over to a mental disorder here and it's it's still within the same vein. This is total bunk, pseudoscientific hoo-ha, but it's coming from an, right. a, a disturbed mind as opposed to someone who's just trying to make money. It certainly is somebody who is reality challenged. You know, we can't make these long-distance <laughs> diagnoses, and I, you know, saying these things are partly in jest. I do not mean to actually make a diagnosis remotely like this, but certainly what, believing in something so bizarre, so immune to refutation is a hallmark of you know of people who have have difficulty you know with reality have a loose relationship with it and that's absolutely at one end of the spectrum of the stuff that we deal with usually you know when when i personally encounter people like this that i think are just delusional i i just ignore them and i try not to get sucked into dealing with them because it's just they just crave attention and and you're better off just not giving it to them the only other thing i would point out really quickly is that this is a a classic example of the grand conspiracy. All the, yes. the pieces are there. And that is that there are three groups of people. There are the villains who are powerful and evil. And 
the aliens fit perfectly in, in, into that. You know, they have all this power. They have control our minds, can create virtual reality, and they have these mysterious, nefarious motives. There are the dupes, which are the vast majority of people who simply have no idea what's going on. We're just sheep and pawns. And then there's this small, dedicated group of those people, the, uh, the army of light, the people who are enlightened, the Gnostics in this case. They just know what the truth is, and they're trying to save the rest of us from the evil conspirators. So this is, you just plug in the details into that, uh, that pattern, that conspiracy framework, and there you go, a grand conspiracy. So what do you think happens with, with this thing? Like the person that came up with all of this, I mean, they're just going to keep believing it. Nothing is going to dissuade them because they're, they're so deep into it, there's no way out. Oh, yeah. I mean, like this Dr. Lash, I mean, his whole career is vested in Gnosticism. I mean, really, it's the basis of everything that, this, that the books that this guy has written, the articles, the uh, lectures that he, that he gives. It's it. I mean, it, it, it's inseparable. Yeah, he obviously is deeply invested in it, but but worse than that is that it's a it's a closed off belief system, so they're immune to change. Uh, one more quick news item. Uh, this is just to note that yesterday was the 199th birthday of Charles Darwin. I didn't get him Yay. anything. Damn it! <laughs> yeah, there's been a tradition of celebrating so-called Darwin Day, and I know Rebecca, you were celebrating quite earnestly yesterday. I well, I always celebrate earnestly. There's no other way to celebrate. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I try to make it to the uh, local Darwin Day um, to do, which uh, is usually at a, a bar, or restaurant. And if you go to DarwinDay.org, they're collecting uh, Darwin Day events around the world, so you can find one in your area for next year. And it's a lot of fun, and I think it's growing every year. Um, I certainly hear from more people who have heard of it and more people who are getting excited about it. And uh, this year, yeah, the party here in Boston was bigger than last year for sure. Uh, there was cake and involved. next year's the bicentennial, 200. Yeah, so next, next year's the biggie. We're, we'll have to do something particularly uh, evolutionary for that, right. I guess. Okay, quick trivia, guys. Who, who shares Darwin's birthday? Date. Wait, is it Lincoln? Yes, Abraham very Lincoln. good. Yeah. Bob wins a prize. And it was the actual day, not just the date. That's, that's right. right. It, exact same day and year. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so, um, but, you know, even as uh, Darwin Day grows in popularity, sadly, evolution does not so much. Um, <laughs> if you look at the statistics, you know, we're, we're still fighting the good fight. I was just looking up the, I was trying to find the most recent poll or survey that's been done, like major survey mm-hmm. the gallup uh organization did a did a survey back in may of 2007 it was right after all those republican presidential candidates well three of them said that they don't believe in evolution mm-hmm. so the gallup poll responded by asking americans about evolution and they asked like the worst worded question ever it's uh. do you personally believe in evolution or not which is just a stupid wording really because you know that's not going to encompass everyone's beliefs there's usually you break it down by either god made us exactly as we are six thousand years ago god made us a long time ago and then guided evolution or you know evolution 
happens according to natural forces. They should have asked two other questions along with that question. The one question being is, do you believe that the Earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the Earth? And the second question they could have asked along the same lines is, do you believe in the germ theory of, of illness and, and, and medicine? You know, just to kind of put it in the context of how established evolution is as far as a theory, it's no way. It's a fact. It is an absolute, one of the most strongest scientific facts humans have ever been able to uh, to prove. Yeah. And yet in, in that poll, 49% uh, of the population said they do believe in evolution. 48% said they do not. And 2% have no opinion, which mm-hmm. I find even more baffling than, than not believing in evolution. Just saying, oh, <laughs> like the Sherry Shepherds of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think about it. I'm putting food in my kid's mouth. Yeah. Oh, actually, I thought up. it would be higher than 2%, actually. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah th- that 48, 49% figure is pretty in line with previous surveys, although it usually breaks down to, you know, about 30% think that evolution happened but was guided in some way by God. And right. only like something like 15 to 18% or so believe that evolution occurred through purely naturalistic forces. But it's less than half believe in any form of evolution. Mm-hmm. That number has not changed much in the last 20 years. It really hasn't, which is, um, yeah, a little depressing. But we keep on keeping on. Yeah, we're going to keep celebrating Darwin's birthday <laughs> until everybody in the world <laughs> understands the theory of evolution. Mm-hmm. Right. And enjoy some cake. Yeah, you don't have to believe it. How about just starting with understanding it? That seems to be a problem for the, a lot of the intelligent design and creationist guys. I think the first, this is our wedge theory. The first step is, you know, they're, they're out at a bar and then, oh, hey, look, there's some free birthday cake. Wow, thanks. Whose birthday is it? <laughs> oh, Charles Darwin, huh? Man, this cake is good. Okay, so that's like the thin, <laughs> that's the thin part of the wedge. So now our strategy eating. is tasty cake. Yes, that's yes. Okay. We've, once we've gotcha. got them eating our cake, we're going to have them eating out of our metaphorical hands gotcha. and literal, our literal hands as well. We can feed them the cake. The wedge of cake. I like it. Wedge of cake. Uh-huh. The wedge-shaped cake. Eating from our opposable thumb and forefinger. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, let's go on to a couple of emails. This first one comes from Michael Carl from Victoria, B.C., Canada. That's British Columbia. Uh, not before Christ. And Michael writes... Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, I, just want, you know, I just have to clarify that for some people out there. Mm-hmm. Michael writes, I am a grad student in mechanical engineering at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. One of the people I share an office with is a PhD student from Germany. We often have discussions on a variety of issues you guys cover from week to week, and one day this led to the topic of fasting. My office mate claims that fasting is a worthwhile endeavor, and he himself does it for health purposes. I went on WebMD for some quick info on the practice and found the following claims slash controversies about fasting. One, that it can help with weight loss. Two, that it can cleanse the body of toxins. Three, it can cure certain diseases. Four, you fast every night and are told to before surgery. Therefore, five, the, the old people have been doing it for thousands of years, so it must be good. And six, it can help you live longer. From my readings, it seems that weight loss with fasting is short-term only. I was hoping you guys could discuss some of the other claims. I have been listening for about eight months now and really enjoy the show. Thanks. Okay, well, thanks for the question, Michael. Bob, you want to tackle this one? Yeah, I will. Thanks for the questions, Michael. I'll try to hit them one by one. Regarding fasting as a weight loss tool, 
for weight, losing weight, it's not a good idea. And uh, I'm making an assumption here. I assume by weight you mean fat loss. No one really should want to lose lean tissue like muscle. Uh, the initial weight loss through fasting could be impressive, but it's primarily water. And if you if you continue with the fasting, you'll you'll start losing nasty things like like muscle and things you don't want to lose. As you start eating normally again, uh, the weight will come right back. Especially with the water with the water weight, people are impressed. Wow, I lost three pounds in two days, but you. You just start eating normally and bam, it comes back very, very fast. Fasting also slows down your metabolism. This is the last thing you want to happen because now you're actually burning calories more efficiently. It takes fewer calories to maintain your weight. So the bottom line with diets, and that's what we're talking about here, fasting in terms of weight loss, it's it's a form, it's an extreme form of dieting. Um, it's essentially a temporary change to diet to lose weight. They don't work. The vast majority of people who diet regain the weight back. The percentage I keep seeing on website after website is 95% and or more. That's right. People who lose weight gain it right back. And in fact, they tend to gain back more weight. Right. So it's counterproductive for weight loss. Right. And that, and that kind of ties in with metabolism uh, slowing down. And uh, if you go back to your old diet, then you could even gain more weight. Permanent lifestyle changes are the best way to go. Just essentially eat less and move more. It's, if you could just follow that, then you will be more healthy and you will lose weight. Next, we have um, the whole removing toxin hubbub. You hear that a lot. There's no biological basis to claim that fasting or enemas for that matter can cleanse your body of toxins. Not even coffee enemas? Oh, it's got to be decaf. Why did we have to bring enemas into this? This is gross. <laughs> That's what people do, man. They people do that. They've got to get rid of those toxins. Get, get a little so, mocha latte. No, you guys have just some weird ass focus or something. Nobody <laughs> why coffee? enemas. Why did anyone pick coffee? You know, like what? Where did that come from? It's cheap and plentiful. That is pretty bizarre. It's but you know, people. There are lots of people that advocate uh, enemas for removing the toxins. That's that's why I brought it up. So uh. your body does not need help in this regard. Your liver, lungs, colon, kidneys, skin. They do a fine job in the toxin removal department. Thank you. They don't need any help. Right, um, and, and your intestines are constantly moving and pushing stuff out. So unless you have a problem with intestinal function or a blockage or something, you know it it will get rid of all of the waste through excretion. And fasting doesn't help that process at all. It's not necessary. No. But people have this sort of bizarre belief that things get gunked up and just get stuck in there. Yeah, they think it's, it's a car true. engine or something. It's just not the same thing. Right. I've got five pounds of undigested meat protein in my colon. You're lucky. Ew. Remember when people you would say that if you swallow gum, it'll stay in your stomach for 11 years? Oh, God. Years? Oh, yeah. yeah. Also wrong. All right. All right. Next question, curing diseases. Extreme fasting or near starvation has, has been shown to weaken your immune system, uh, even for something simple like a cold. So in that regard, it's, it's extremely counterproductive when it comes to uh, getting sick. Um, I could find... Nothing to indicate that fasting can cure disease, but I did come across some preliminary studies that imply it, it may help with things like diabetes. The study that I read dealt with rats that fasted every other day. So one day they would eat nothing. The next day they would eat pretty much whatever, whatever they wanted. And it seemed to show that, um, that they became more resistant to diabetes and some other ills um, than, than the control mice did. The study author Mark Matson has a p- hypothesized that each that each fast each day of fasting is like a is like a bit of stress on the body that causes the release of stress resistance proteins that may ex- explain this potentially. Other studies, however, have shown that the calories consumed overall go down 
and that's what explains this effect. That's all I can come up with uh, for that question about about curing disease. Steve, if you have anything else to add to that, no, yeah, there's um, no there's no evidence that fasting yeah. is a way to treat any particular disease. Right. I mean, there are some diseases that were that are treated with with diet modification, uh, usually. Um, removing things from the diet that your body has difficulty metabolizing or that may produce some metabolites that that can either drive a disease or cause problems. Uh, Your body has some metabolic problems dealing with it, but not removing all nutrition. Your body actually likes nutrition. You know, it actually runs on it. Right. So it's not, it's really never a good thing to completely deprive your body of uh, nutrients for any period of time. And I think the, the simplest conclusion in terms of the diabetes is that it was overall a lowered caloric intake. Right. That's any anything else is purely speculative at this point. It's not impossible that it would cause some kind of a metabolic trigger that you know might you know have some beneficial effect, but we're, that certainly has not been not right. been demonstrated. And if and if you have if you have diabetes, do not start skipping meals or or skipping whole oh, days. Wow. That. Yeah. Uh, Definitely would be very premature at, at this point. That is certainly against conve- the conventional wisdom for right. diabetes, where you want to have a very steady, slow intake of calories. You don't want to fast right. and then have a huge caloric intake. That's exactly what your body can't handle when right. you have diabetes, is these pulses of food. You want to have it spread out over a long period of time. Slow and steady wins a race. Is that because it can't release the insulin to break down? Well, if you have type 1, you can't release the insulin. And if you have type 2, your body is resistant to insulin, right. so it doesn't respond as much to it. Now, the surgery and other medical procedures often require some fasting. If a real doctor tells you to fast before having a procedure, listen to your doctor. Do it. Yeah. When you're having surgery and under anesthesia, digesting food is an extra variable that they, that doesn't that the doctors don't want to deal with, so that's why they, they tell you to uh, to fast before going under anesthesia. Also, uh, puking would be contraindicated at this time. Yeah, that so would, yeah, the big thing is you don't fun. want to uh, aspirate, you know, get the food in your lungs. And of course, if you're having abdominal surgery or you know intestinal or colon surgery, you don't want stuff pouring out. You know, they need to be absolutely cleaned out. So right. there's lots of procedures where you know they not only you have to fast, you have to take the go lightly or the, the that stuff that completely cleans out your intestines. But this this is just practical you know considerations right. for the surgery itself. It has nothing to do really with being healthful. Right. Um and some medical tests like those for cholesterol and blood sugar also would not be accurate uh if you ate beforehand. So they would say please don't eat, you know, the morning of 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 your test. So that those are just obvious things. The next question that we were given here was, it's um, regarding the, uh, the our, you know, our ancestors have been doing it for so long. Uh, it's true that people have been fasting for thousands of years, but to argue that this means the practice is, is good sure sounds like a logical fallacy to me. Steve, uh, I tried to find a, to, I tried to pinpoint a specific logical fallacy that that argument applies to. Argument of authority. It's an argument um, ad populi. Hmm. It's more ad populi. It's popular. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, people have been do- either a lot of people are doing it, or people have been doing it for a long time. You know, we might refer to that also as the argument from antiquity, which is is really just a subset of the argument from popularity or the argument ad populi. So. It says other people are doing it, so it must be good. And the last one, uh, the last argument about longevity, I believe this is confusing fasting with calorie restriction. Mm-hmm. Lots of studies have been done on permanently re- restricting calories to the bare minimum that you that you can that these animals that have 
it's been done on, assuming a sufficient nu- nutrition, but just the bare minimum of, uh, of calories. And that has shown a marked longe- effect on longevity with rats and yeast. And this has not been shown in humans yet. I think it, it, it might, it could, but of course it's obviously difficult to test people because uh, we live so long. Yeah. Uh, but there might be a similar effect, and they're, all, they're actually looking into ways to mimicking this calorie restriction effect in other ways without, without relying on uh, restricting your diet so much. But occasional fasting is very different um, from this, and uh, I don't think that this calorie restricting, restriction effect could be induced if your overall caloric consumption remains near normal. It just kind of defeats the purpose of the whole idea of calorie restriction. Yeah, so, and so to I be think- clear, you're right. It has not been demonstrated. The longevity effect of calorie restriction has not been demonstrated in humans. And, you know, it's really hard to extrapolate from mice to people when it comes to life expectancy. It's just that's a really right. hard thing to do. Just I don't know that you can extrapolate from like sixty days to eighty years. You know. Yeah, but the more the more animals you show it in, though, um, might lead you in the direction to think that potentially humans might have a similar effect. The number of calories you'd have to cut are also not trivial. I mean, in right. order to get the benefits, you're talking about like you know like stick figures walking around eating like absolutely. Little- little it, tiny yes. handfuls of oatmeal once a day. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it's bad. not it's pathetic. worth an extra I've seen, I've seen people who are subjecting themselves to that, and they, they do not look good. Yeah, yeah. They're, you know, there's like the, the vegans, the fruitarians, and then these guys are just like way out there, like yeah. eating like a grain of rice a day, and they look scary, and it is not a life I want. Clearly, this is not a method that, that people, if it worked, if we knew it worked, Clearly, people cannot would not be able to tolerate this. So the hope is that they, they find some analog, some way to mimic this effect in a way yeah. that doesn't require the calorie restriction. That's really the only mm-hmm. way it could really benefit a lot of people. And uh, that's it. Thanks for the question, Michael. All right. Well, let's go on to our interview. Joining us now is Dr. P.Z. Myers. P.Z., welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Hello. Glad to be here. Uh, P.Z. Myers is the author of Feringula, which is, I believe, the most popular science blog. He's also an associate professor of biology at the University of Minnesota, Morris. Uh, so again, thanks for joining us. And first, why don't you tell us about your, about your blog, Feringula? Why, why did you start uh, a science blog? Oh, everybody asks that question. It's it's because I felt like it. <laughs> That's a good reason. It's a good enough reason. Yeah, I know. I I live in a very small town in the western edge of Minnesota, and it it just seemed like a good way to reach out and get some communication going with someplace outside this dinky little town. Mm-hmm. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly did. Yeah. Yeah, that's you know the beautiful thing about the internet is that you know no matter where you live, you're part of a, of a worldwide virtual community. Exactly. Now, the the topics you cover in your blog are fairly far ranging. Obviously, you cover a lot of biological topics uh, and science topics, but you also venture into uh, into politics and religion freely as well, and especially where all those things intersect. Tell me about that. Why why did you decide to for the blog to be so far ranging in its topics? Oh, nothing was ever decided. I mean, it was. It, it just evolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I initially set the blog up, and it was just random thoughts that I had. It was just me chatting away, and at first nobody answered, but eventually people started to pick up on it. And uh, those just happen to be topics that I'm concerned about. Mm-hmm. 
as, as a biologist as, and as a biologist who's particularly interested in evolutionary questions, uh, that brings us right into cl- collision with things like creationism and religion. And yeah, so, you know, I, I, I try to do a mix of things because, just because I like writing and I talk about non-controversial things, but some of the controversial stuff is good for drawing in an audience. Mm-hmm. People like to watch a fight. <laughs> right. Right. But did it ever worry you, though, with your with your day job that the blog, the controversial topics on the blog might uh, interfere with what actually makes money for you? Oh, well, not really. You know, and uh, now that I think back on it, I must have been nuts. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I had a fair amount of confidence in the principle of academic freedom and the willingness of my university to defend it. And it, it really wasn't on my mind that they might get upset that I'm that I'm arguing about mm-hmm. religion, for instance. The, you know, the administration here has never, ever tried to silence me or suggest that I tone things down or anything like that. So uh, it's worked out well. And what about at the other end? Do you think that, and this is a, obviously a topic that's very close to me as well, do you think that spending as much time and effort as you do popularizing science or improving the public understanding of science, which I think is the, the in vogue way to describe it these days, has that ever, do you think, has that ever, ever been an academic plus for you, or do you think it's just below the radar for your university? Now, that's a really difficult question, and I'm not sure... I know that, for instance, when I was up for tenure, it was discussed, mm-hmm. and I think it was considered a net positive for me. But on the other hand, you know, on my CV and so forth, and all the various applications I file with the university and things like that, you know, if you're an academic, you know that there's three main categories. There's research, there's teaching, and there's service. And at my university, teaching is number one, and then research and service trails way, way, way far behind. And I've always discussed what I do on the web in the terms of, of service. So it's, it's the least important thing I'm supposed to be doing here. So that's, that's a, a little bit of a concern. Uh, last time I submitted my CV to the administration here, it was, it was rather scary because the, the service section was a couple miles long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But you said you, you uh, by teaching, does that is that restricted to teaching students at the University of Minnesota, or does public yes. teaching not count? You know, I, I I could probably make an argument, but I haven't. What I what I've said is that the teaching part is exclusively what I do for my students enrolled at the university, mm-hmm. and anything where I do public outreach, where I lecture to people in the community, that I throw into service. Okay, I'm not sure that the um, that that distinction is so sharp at Yale, where where I teach. Uh, but I also think they don't know what to quite know what to do with all of the internet stuff that their people do. Yes, uh, ac- academia is floundering right now with this stuff. Yeah, and, you know, in part, I think one reason I did it that way is that, that some of the stuff I do is controversial and irritates some people, mm-hmm. and and I'm I'm actually kind of minimizing it as far as the university is concerned. Mm-hmm. This this is my hobby, <laughs> right? Right. Well, you know, you're certainly doing a wonderful service. I mean, again, we we uh, you know feel a solidarity with anybody who's trying to teach science to the public. I think it's all good, and you also have put yourself at um, somewhat at the forefront, as you say, uh, of the conflict between uh, evolution and creationism and intelligent design. And frankly, I think we need more scientists on the battle lines uh, there. Don't you agree? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's another thing that's a hard sell, though. And, you know, I'm not entirely convinced myself because 
talking about creationism is not doing science. It takes away from doing mm-hmm. science. And I think the majority of the people out there doing research should be doing research. That's what they go into the business for. That's what they love to do. I, I could argue safely that we ought to encourage more people to participate in this argument. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly wouldn't consider it an essential part of, of the academic experience. Yeah, I agree, but I, I do see it as a service, a public yes. service. And everyone's got to do their fair share. Otherwise, it leaves uh, sort of a disproportionate amount of the job to those of us who are willing to do it. Well, it's, it's, I think it's okay, though, for, for some of us to be doing this. What I would like is to see that you know it, it wasn't disparaged. It was treated as a reasonable thing by right. the, the other faculty at the university. I mean, I, I don't really have any problems here at my place, but uh, I can imagine that you know that a lot of people would discourage their peers from getting mired down in this mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you bring up a really good point, which is the catch twenty two of this whole thing, and this extends to all of of scientific skepticism, confronting uh, irrationality and pseudoscience. And unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that if we're not really careful in how we go about doing this, we actually cause more harm than good by bringing undue credibility and attention to the very things that we ridicule. Yes. Have you ever found that sort of unintended consequence of what you do? Oh, the the whole question of, for instance, whether biologists should debate creationists mm-hmm. and sort of the consensus among the community right now is, is no, you shouldn't because... Like you say, it's it's handing them credibility on a platter, and that's exactly what they want. But you know, th- at the same time, there is that awkward trade-off where you listen to the creationists talk, and if they're not opposed, they say the most amazingly stupid things. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 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 making arguments are just total nonsense. And if 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 nobody stands up and says, "Wait a minute, that's not right," and explains what is right, they go unquestioned. Yeah, and that's the catch-22, right? That's the damned yes. if you do, damned if you don't. Yes. So, you know, there there have been occasions in the past where I have been asked to do debates, and, and my stock answer is that, no, I'd rather not do a debate. What I would rather do is, you know, if, if you've got a creationist coming to your campus, for instance, don't put me in the same room with the guy, and don't put me on, on the same podium. What we ought to do is let him talk, and then... Give me or some biologist, you know, an, an hour lecture that night or some other night where we can talk about real science. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we get into the arguments with them, the other thing is, you know, we, we end up spending all of our time trying to refute the most ridiculous crap that they're spewing. Uh, and there, there's so many much more interesting things going on in biology than the, the silly wrong things that they are questioning. Mm-hmm. The gish gallop. Yes. Oh, I've seen that so often. <laughs> it's referring to uh, Dwayne Gish's tendency to throw out so many lies and falsehoods that you could never possibly get to correcting all of them in the during right. debate. Yeah, and, and PZ, I, I I just heard you debate a creationist uh, last week, and it it blew my mind that he actually brought up the idea that we're descended from monkeys, like. How do you go about debating somebody who is recycling things that any fifth grader should know better? This is the KKMS radio debate? Yes, with with Dr. Jeffrey Simmons, who was, uh, I guess, representing the Discovery Institute, correct? Yeah, which is kind of shocking right there because he he knew nothing. Yeah, no, that's part of the problem. I mean, that that was horrendous. I got on there with this guy, and he's bringing up these... Rank absurdities that, you know, for instance, that there are no transitional whale fossils. Mm-hmm. We've got long lists of them. I was able to name some of them from 
And then when I mention them, he says, well, but they don't show the blowhole migrating. And we've got beautiful examples of uh, this n- dorsal drift of the nasal passages. So you you get up there with these guys, and they're they're free to just make stuff up. Mm-hmm. And we're shackled by the fact that we got our, we're constrained to the evidence. Makes it a little harder for us. But if you know the evidence, it's it's actually not too bad. Yeah, I want to talk about that debate a little bit because I, I listened to the whole thing. We'll link to it, of course, on our, on our show notes. You didn't you did an excellent job, by the way. I think as good as one can do, given as we just said that they could just spew out so much nonsense. It's just hard to. It's like yeah. where do you begin? How could you get to it all? I I was. Not shocked, but you know, it was. Uh, I was a little surprised by how abysmal this guy Jeffrey Simmons performed. Uh, he wasn't even good for them, and they're all, I think, a bunch of baboons when, on this topic. They just don't know <laughs> what they're talking about. The the whale uh, fossil debate. You know, he he actually said, "Well, I don't know these fossils by name." You know, as if like that's yes. a trivial thing. Well, actually, did, knowing didn't the he fossils. He wrote a book on it. He wrote a book on it, though. Right? Yeah, he wrote. Yes, he, he, he felt free to write a book about it. But what I thought, I, I actually laughed when he, you said that he was ignorant of the fossil evidence of whale evolution, and then he tried to turn that around on you by saying that you were calling him names and being mean by calling him <laughs> ignorant. <laughs> and it's true, I was being mean. Um, you know that that's an that's an, another interesting uh, bit of dissension among the community about this. Uh, should we get up there and be polite and friendly? Are are we going to argue that we should we should be really sweet to them so that we don't alienate our audiences? And uh, you know, I'm I'm saying no. We should we shouldn't pander to them at all. And, yeah. Uh, you know, when, when you've got an idiot, call him an idiot. Right. But actually, you didn't and, uh, call him an idiot, and you didn't call him an oh, ignoramus well, yeah. or anything. You said he was ignorant of the evidence, and that's just a factual yeah. statement. Yes. Well, yeah. You know, I, I'm if if I'm a, if I'm in a public situation where I'm arguing with somebody, no, I I won't just flatly call them an idiot. But mm-hmm. what I'll do is I'll I'll point out here's X, Y, and Z that you don't know, and here's A, B, and C that you've got completely wrong. Right. So it's it's effectively the same thing, right? Now here's here was my hypothesis after listening to him because he he so quickly jumped upon really what was a completely innocent statement on your part. I, I felt that I think that half the reason why they say things that are so outrageously, ridiculously, and patently false is that they're trying to provoke you into being mean and dogmatic so they could turn around and say, "See, see, see how dogmatic they are and mean they are," because that's really the only thing they have to talk about. They're totally lost on the facts. The, the, uh-huh. you know, their, their strategy these days seems to be just tr- ranting about how uh, oppressive, quote-unquote, Darwinists are. What do you think about yes. that theory? Oh, no, definitely. That's part of the strategy. And, and, and it's part of their appeal to their audience, too, is, is to play the martyr card. Yeah. To say that they're being persecuted. That, that's, that's this basis of this whole new movie that's coming out, this expelled, mm-hmm. is... Is essentially, you know, they've got no evidence, but what they can do is is play the the poor persecuted Christian and get some uh, uh, personal sympathy from from an audience, and that's what they're aiming for. But now, but the other part of it, though, is is that the other tactic that that I see them taking is taking evolution and turning it into Darwinism, you know, and and I. I loved what you did with that because you said it's not about Darwin. Darwin, it's about biology, and to me, that just kind of ter- totally turns it around on them. And it, they can't make it an attack on a person; they're they're attacking this, you know, vaunted science, biology. So that's a great way to handle it, I think. Oh yeah, uh, you know, it, if you listen to that debate, the 
that was part of the strategy they were pulling. So I, you know, I came yep. out, came out with guns blazing and said, "No, we don't. We're we're not uh, worshiping Darwin. Darwin's idea is 150 years old, and so forth." And uh, you know, he, as you mentioned, he later got into this business of, "Oh, you're being so mean to me," and saying that if you're a scientist, you shouldn't make these kinds of arguments. But the week after that, he was also on the radio program. They they gave him an, another hour to talk about this stuff without me around. And uh, he closed his show there with the most appalling uh, accusations against Darwin. It was, uh, you, you know, on the one hand, they want to claim that we're being mean, but when you hear them talk about Charles Darwin, it is, it's just terrible. Uh, he was saying that the guy wasn't a scientist, mm-hmm. that he could never get published nowadays, uh, you know, that he was a racist, that he would, you know, and... Yeah. You know, so they accuse us of, of the horrible ad hominem, ad, ad hominem attack, but they're pretty good at it themselves. Yeah, actually, he did that during the debate with you. I mean, I just listened oh, that's to right. It. He also did it then. He did yeah, it th- at the, he, even though you corrected him by pointing out that there's been 150 years of science since Darwin, he still wouldn't let that go. I mean, he's not going to let the facts get in the way of his chosen rhetorical strategy. And he brought it back to, well, people think of it as Darwinism, so I'm going to just treat this all as Darwinism. That was his justification. <laughs> then he he launched into just what you said. Darwin was not peer-reviewed and couldn't get published and was a racist and a sexist. And by the way, they thought all kinds of kooky stuff back then. It's just really okay. absurd. I mean, they're, they're trying to set it up as this person. Then they attack the person, which is a known you know, logical fallacy, just poisoning the well, as if it says anything about the science of evolution. Right. Yeah, and you know, the, if you talk to scientists, they'll, they'll happily argue about the virtues of, of Darwin. You know, we, we generally concede that he was a pretty smart guy and he did really well, but, um, you know, on things like genetics, we know he got it all wrong and will freely admit it. I talk about it in my classes all the time about here, here's Darwin's error. But then what they want to do in these kind of debates is pretend that we put him on a pedestal, which is, is exactly the opposite of everything. We criticize everything he did. And what's astounding is over 150 years, big chunks of what he said have held up fairly well. Yeah, it's amazing how much he got right, actually. Oh, yeah. Really yeah, is. no, he was he a was brilliant guy. Uh, the other, I thought, main chunk of his strategy was, and I think he, this is his shtick in general, is just the argument from personal incredulity. Just, you know, gee whiz, look how, look how awfully complex life is. How could it possibly have evolved? And there he stepped right into your specialty as a developmental biologist, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, this, this is a standard ploy, is the litany of complexity. Uh, they don't have to actually make an argument. They just get there and they say, this is marvelously complicated. And they list all these things. They list mitochondria and they list, you know, uh, flagellar motors and so forth. And they are complicated. We agree with that, too. And it wasn't creationists who figured out that they were complicated. Right. It was biologists. But evolution is wonderfully good at generating all kinds of intricacies and building all kinds of useless complexity into things. This this is a hallmark of a process that's driven by randomness, by chance, that you're naturally going to accumulate all kinds of bizarre, elaborate complexities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, 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 the amazing thing is that all these complexities work, but then that's what selection does. It only allows the ones that actually work to make it through to the next generation. Uh, so it, it's a strange argument that they want to make. And it's hard to review, refute because uh, people generally think of complexity as a hallmark of design and engineering and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, when actually, when you look at most design and engineering, the hallmark is simplification. 
right. making things reproducible, making things what making things well designed means making it elegant and simple and streamlined, not complex and and jury rigged like uh, yes. like the bottom up evolved system of life is right. As as a developmental biologist, do you have a couple of favorite examples from developmental biology that really shows uh, the evolutionary history of of life? Oh, well, yeah. How much time do we have to explain this stuff? (laughs) A couple of days. Yeah, okay. (laughs) When does work start tomorrow? (laughs) Right. Well, one one example I use a fair amount is is the evolution of segmentation genes, okay, that... um, what you see is is this wonderfully interesting pattern where um, we think the the original system was was fairly simple. That what you had is uh, basically had chemical oscillators. Okay, uh, you had you generated waves of, of chemicals across the length of the animal, and those were then read in order to specify individual segments in the body plan. Uh, and if you look in things like vertebrates, you see something similar right now. They've got kind of this clock-like mechanism where they generate waves of activity, and each tick of the clock generates a new segment. When you look at something like Drosophila, what you discover is that what they have done is, over the course of evolution, they have tweaked that. And what they've done is they've added extra layers of molecular control to the process so that they don't have the clock anymore. They've gotten past the clock. What they've done is they now have molecules dedicated to specifying individual segments. Actually, it's control elements to molecules that specify individual segments. So they've added this wonderfully detailed layer on top of it. When you, when you look at segmentation control in Drosophila versus mammals, Drosophila wins on the complexity argument. Mm-hmm. It's, it's much more complicated than, than anything we've got. And it's all uh, uh, this jury-rigged mess of special cases thrown in there to make sure that all the segments can develop as rapidly as possible and as robustly as possible. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to talk about complexity, you know, you look at you, uh, we'd have to say fruit fly. You look at this piece of it. This is much more complex than what we've got. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the designer is a giant cosmic fruit fly. Then, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> It, and so from what you're describing, it really points out that it's, it's again, this sort of bottom-up system that evolves by adding pieces and adding pieces and adding complexity, not something that was designed from the top down from the beginning to do what it does now. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and, and each of those little components that ad- was added on, it was, isn't added by design. It's, it's added by chance. You know, a chance uh, modification to a molecule so it's expressed in a specific segment, for instance, will be preserved simply because it makes the formation of that segment a little bit more robust, a little stronger. Mm-hmm. And you do that, you know, over millions of years and you end up with this welter of little molecules all doing a little special dedicated job, uh, a great deal of intricacy and complexity, but, uh, you look at it, it's, it's a Rube Goldberg machine. It's not something elegant. What are some of your other favorite topics to blog about other than the, the evolution-creation debate? Oh, well, I'm, I'm a big proponent of atheism for, one, for another. Uh, so and I'm, I'm pretty militant about atheism. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's... You're in the, uh, the Richard Dawkins school of atheism. Yes. Uh, there, there are some things, you know... We're actually getting together at, at the end of March at uh, the American Atheist meeting here in Minneapolis, and I think we're going to be sitting there trying to outdo each other on the militancy of our atheism. <laughs> <laughs> 
This should be interesting. I'll win on a few categories. I think he'll win on a few categories. It'll be a lot of fun. PZ, one of the one of the things that you've used, um, I don't know if this was again. You, you say none of this happened by design or or deliberately, just sort of evolved. But one of the cute things about your blog is that you are a big proponent of cephalopods, and that's well, kind of yes. like the mascot of your of your blog. How did <laughs> how did that come about? Oh, it came about as a as a way to provide me with a sense of perspective. Okay, my in my research, I work on zebrafish. Mm-hmm. And uh, you probably know this. Model systems are these wonderful, powerful tools with some serious limitations, that they're not representative of the wider pattern of development, for instance. Uh, they tend to be selected. Uh, you, you want animals that develop very, very quickly and with a great deal of, of uh, fidelity, which is not the way most animals are going to be working. Most animals are going to develop more slowly and they're going to be sloppier about it and so forth. I, I just didn't want to get in the trap of thinking zebrafish are the way everything develops. So I went looking for just something to, to read about now and then as a counterbalance. Mm-hmm. And and people know very little about squid development. So I thought that was perfect subject. So I, I, I just, you know, I, every week I go through the journals and I'm reading all this traditional stuff on zebrafish and on, you know, hedgehog and all these other interesting model molecules. And uh, I just make it a point to seek out now and then something on cephalopods, mm-hmm. just to see. I keep looking for the detailed developmental papers, and there haven't been a lot. There have been a few. But even if they, if they, even if they don't write too much about development of cephalopods, they, they always have cool stuff that cephalopods do. It makes for a good blog post. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're very photogenic animals. BZ, do, do you eat calamari? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wasn't sure because I I had to give it up once I learned how how smart they are. I just I couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. Well, so you're I, actually I, to blame for the fact that I can't eat calamari anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I you know I, I come from this biological tradition. I came from a number of labs where it was it was the tradition that at some point you had to eat your experimental animal. <laughs> oh God! Which is great if you're working with lobsters. <laughs> it's a little bit challenging if you're working with grasshoppers. Or fruit flies, <laughs> or fruit flies. Yeah. Well, at least they're small. Yeah, you know, I've, I, <laughs> I, every year I, I teach genetics, and and you know, one of the things you have to do with fruit flies is when you're done with them, you have to kill them, and you kill them by dumping them in, in alcohol. And I get the, these bottles full of inch thick piles of dead fruit flies preserved in alcohol, and I keep thinking there's a recipe somewhere for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a friend who studies yeast, so that. That whole eating your your lab subjects oh, really work. no, that's drinking your subject. Yeah. <laughs> ah. yeah. So PZ, you are going to be one of the lecturers at the amazing meeting six in June. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Is this your first TAM? Yes, this is my first time there. I have no idea what I'm going to do yet. You haven't decided on your talk, your topic. I haven't decided on my topic yet. That's that's right. I've got a couple of ideas floating around in my head, and we'll we'll see what emerges. In the next month or two. Well, we, we will all be there as well. I'm also lecturing oh, at TAM6, so we will get to meet. Uh, uh-huh. It's going to be a, a huge uh, skeptical party. There, yeah, there sure will be. Literally, there will be a Literally. huge skeptical party. Rebecca will, will make sure invited. of that. Oh, I good. Will. I will. So, PZ, thank you for joining us on the Skeptic's Guide, and we look forward to meeting you at the amazing meeting. Oh, yeah. It's likewise. It's, it's going to be a great meeting. So, Thanks so much, PZ. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. Good night. 
It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week's three science news items? Yes. Couldn't be readier. Here we go. Item number one. Researchers report that fatal shark attacks increased by 350% in 2007, but cannot explain the increase. Item number two, scientists have discovered a technique for boosting the mouse immune system, creating virtual immunity to viral infections. And item number three, physicists have successfully simulated the event horizon of a black hole in the laboratory. Jay, why don't you go first? The fatal shark attacks increasing by 350% does not seem likely to me. I just don't know why you would make that up, though, So, but that's... That's weird. Uh, the scientists discovering a technique for boosting the mouse immune system and creating a uh, immunity to viral infections, I think that's very plausible, and I've been waiting for that, and I can't really shoot holes in that. The The event horizon one, th- this is one of those tricky ones, but I, I just don't see this happening. You know, the, Correct me if I'm wrong, the event horizon is where no light passes, uh, can escape from the gravity well. That's right. And you're saying here that... Uh, they successfully simulated one. That's what he's saying. And I just, I just feel lame picking the first one, the shark one, because uh, it's just boring. <laughs> be, be quite honest with you. Yeah, I'm going to go with the first one as the fake, <laughs> the sharks. Okay. Evan? These are all so plausible. Well, except number three, but that's, I mean, the, uh, the, the event horizon of the black hole in the laboratory. How? I, I, I'll be stunned when I hear how they did that or tried to do it. So I think that's the curveball. So therefore, I think that one is science. And therefore, it's between the sharks or the mouse. Shark or a mouse. Hmm. I will say it is going to be the immune system of the mouse is fiction. I think it's too much of a pipe dream and it hasn't come true yet. Okay, Rebecca? I happen to believe that shark attacks are regularly blown out of proportion by the media and therefore I'm thinking that it is not at all true that fatal shark attacks increased by 350%. That is absurd. Fiction. All right, Bob. <sighs> well, well, first off, there's not a lot of shark attacks in any given year anyway. So a 350% increase in absolute numbers isn't huge. You know, I don't I don't know what the number is, but I don't think it's a big number. So three and a half times more, I mean, I don't know, maybe because of global warming, there's more beach time for people, so they're swimming more, and I don't know. Uh, They can't explain it, though. Uh, So let's put that one aside for a moment. Um, Boosting the mouse immune system, that would be awesome. I'm going to say that is, uh, I'm going to say that is science. I'm going to buy that one. The third one, now this is the kicker. The physicists have successfully simulated... The event horizon of a black hole in the laboratory. Now, if you say laboratory, I I kind of believe that it's not a computer simulation. It's something real. So, in order to create an event horizon, you need a huge you need a huge gravity well, such that light light can't even get away from it. And I just don't I don't know how they're going to do that in a laboratory. Even so, what are they making really tiny black holes? That's not happening. So, or they're probably doing it some other way. And that's probably it. And 
and but I, I I can't buy it, and I could buy the other ones much more readily than this one. Um, so I'm going to say the Event Horizon simulation is baloney. Okay, so you guys are all divided this week. This has mm. happened in a while. So why don't we take them in order? First one is researchers report that fatal shark attacks increased by 350% in 2007, but cannot explain the increase. And Rebecca and Jay thought that one was fiction. Yeah. And that one was fiction. Oh, both correct. Rock on. Good job, Rebecca. High five. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) So that's my one. The real report is that shark deaths from shark attacks are actually way down this year. They're at seven point six percent of shark attacks, down from twelve point three percent reported in the nineteen nineties. That's of all attacks, attributed mainly to advances in medical treatment. For in terms of number of attacks, in 2006, there were 63 shark attacks overall on, against humans. And in 2007, there were 71. So the absolute number, it really is not significantly different. This is, uh, Rebecca, you are correct, shark attacks, ever since Jaws, you know, the movie Jaws, they are blown out of proportion by the press. There are far fewer shark attacks than most people think. And, Particularly and a few, few years ago, it was the summer of the shark because like one kid got his leg ripped yeah. off. And, well, Australia yeah. had and, a bad year for sharks a couple of years ago, too. Had a couple of attacks yeah. there. They right. got lots of great, great whites over there. It's true. But again, only a few attacks can you know, really affect the numbers because the absolute numbers are, are so low. Uh, but I, I, and I, I, was t- I included this this particular one because we received an email recently from a list uh, from a listener. Did you guys? I don't know if you caught this one. I think it just came in today. This comes from Jeremy Piat from Portland, who points out that there is actually a shark conspiracies website. Oh yeah, some oh, yeah, some guy made a conspiracy out of the notion that scientists are saying there aren't that many shark attacks, and he's saying that shark attacks are this huge problem that is being covered up, you know, by the powers that be. <laughs> Who are the powers that be? Is that the, yeah, is right. that the hammerheads the, or... The anti-shark attack people. <laughs> Who's behind this? The pentaverate. <laughs> let me guess, let me guess. Is it, is it the Jew shark? It's usually the Jew shark that's <laughs> covering Jewish everything sharks. up, right? <laughs> Isn't that normally it's where It's probably not a coincidence that this guy sells shark repellent surfer gear. Uh, ah, yeah. there you go. Right, so that's coincidence. <laughs> you know, I heard they not... found a shark and it was full of thermite. <laughs> <laughs> you can it make was a conspiracy out of anything. It was, what shark had, repellent? Now that I think about it, what is it? <laughs> the shark had molten steel in its stomach. <laughs> <laughs> shark repellent. They take dolphins and yeah, grind them into a powder and uh, turn it into a spray. <laughs> that's sick. All right, the next, new, the next uh, one, number two, scientists have discovered a technique for boosting the mouse immune system, creating virtual immunity to viral infections. This one is science. That is science. Awesome. Very cool. Now, this is interesting. And again, this, yeah, of course, this is in mice. It, this is uh, not something that will necessarily translate to humans. But of course, that is the hope. This is going to be published uh, in the, the current issue of Nature. Uh, what they did was they they created knockout mice. This is a very standard technique in biomedical research where uh, you essentially you know, 
create a um, a strain of mutant mice where you you knock out a gene or or two, and you see what happens. You say, oh, what happens when we take this piece away? Inval- invaluable tool. Yeah, v- extremely valuable. Two uh, repressor genes called 4EBP1 and 4EBB2. These are genes that repress the synthesis of a protein, LRT7, and this protein increases the production of uh, interferon, one of the interferons, and the interferons are proteins that are involved in the immune system. So, Essentially, as described by Dr. Costa Mattioli, uh, who's one of the lead authors, just says that this takes the brakes off, basically. This um, increases the activity of the immune system by removing one of the mechanisms that inhibits the production of these uh, immune mediators. That This increases the interferon that's particularly involved with immunity against viruses. And this created this sort of super immunity to viruses in these mice. Now, of course, we can't create knockout humans, right? You can't do the exact same thing in humans. But it's possible that we could find either some pharmacological or some other mechanism by which we can suppress the same genes in humans, thereby, you know, increasing immunity. The question I have, of course, is, well, if it's so easy to increase the effectiveness of the immune system, you know, why hasn't this occurred just through natural right. evolution already? Why are these genes, you know, these two genes there that put the brakes on? And, you know, as I described last week, the immune system is something that's very carefully regulated and modulated in the body. And if you, you know, take away these brakes that increased immune activity, is this going to increase the risk of autoimmune disease of, of the immune system going out of control and maybe even attacking the host's body. Now, these mice did not appear to have, as far as they could tell, did not appear to have any ill health effects from having these genes knocked out. Of course, again, that doesn't mean that, that the same would be true in humans. And also, I think we need to follow this longer. It may be that it just increases the probability of something untoward happening, and you'd need to you know, yeah. look at more mice over a longer period of time before we see statistically what the, real, what the downside is of doing this. I think I know the name of the mice that they did, these two knockout mice. They were called uh, Pinky and the Brain. Pinky and the Brain. So the one side effect is that they're going to try and take over the world. Yeah, right, that's the negative it's side. Worth it. How are they going to do that, Brain? One of them went insane, I heard, <laughs> but no oh. <laughs> the last item, physicists have successfully simulated the event horizon of a black hole in the laboratory, is also science. Tell me about this. Yeah, one. this is interesting. That's kind of uh, weird. This is interesting. You've got to be shitting me. So what they are using is uh, different frequencies of light in fiber optics. And you know, different frequencies of light will propagate at different speeds uh, through fiber optics. And they're using different, different light beams... And essentially, one light beam, if they do, you know, do, do it in a certain technique, one light beam can never catch up to the other one. And this creates a situation where you know, one light beam is essentially uh, trapped, if you will. And that reproduces the situation, they say, or simulates the situation of the event horizon around a black hole. Now, they're, again, they're not simulating a black hole per se, but just the event horizon. And they're doing it by using these variable frequencies of, of photons or of light. Uh, in these fiber optic cables, and they think that they can create the same kind of interaction at that, that demarcation, you know, between these beams of light that would happen at an event horizon. That sounds like a weak analogy to me. This, this is why they're doing it. They are doing this experiment because they think it's going to teach them something about 
about the property of uh, of the event horizon. Really? Yep. Just pulling gravity completely out of the equation. Yeah, I mean, they're just trying to get at the same kind of effect a different way. They're calling it a laser black hole. And they say, it could allow physicists to examine what happens to light on both sides of, a event, of an event horizon. What can't they do with lasers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lasers are pretty cool. So, yeah, this was tricky, Bob. This one was definitely the tricky one. I told you one. it was the curveball. Bastard. So I got that part Should've right. Should have known it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, hit me, he hit me with the curveball again. Hey, Rebecca. But, yes. Let's do uh, that high five again. Ready? Okay. Nice. Well all done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Got to do your victory lap. All right, we'll wait while you do your victory lap. I just smacked Rebecca right in the <laughs> mouth. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you wish. Oh, uh, God. You know, whenever you guys swear like that, I get criticism from people because we have swear words in our podcast, and I get criticism from other people because I censored the swear words in our podcast. <laughs> right. So, so I get it from to... both ends. We can't fucking please these people. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, fucking crazy. That'll all hold the little bastards. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's end this, Travis. All right, Jay, give us a quote. Yeah. Let's hear it, Jay. From H.R. Puff and Stuff. I mean, H.L. <laughs> <H>. Mencken. <laughs> Bees knees are ready to freeze. He was a uh, American journalist, an essayist, and a magazine <laughs> editor. And uh, he was born September twelfth, eighteen eighty, and died in nineteen fifty six. Most famous for his coverage of the Scopes Monkey Trial. Ooh, quite right. And he said, "For it is the natural tendency of the ignorant to believe what is not true. In order to overcome that tendency, it is not sufficient to exhibit the true. It is also necessary to expose and denounce the false." H.L. Mencken! That's a good motto for the skeptical movement. That's a good one. And well, we should point out that that quote was sent to us by listener Dave Anderson. So, Dave, thanks for sending that in. Thank thanks, you, Dave. Dave. Oh, and you know, I, I have a very short announcement. My new blog, Crap Based Medicine, is doing really well. And so, I've just posted a new entry. So, people should check that out. It addresses some of the same things we talked about tonight, but hopefully in a, in a new and interesting way. And while we're talking about blogs, we have three other blogs that uh, collectively we are doing. We're busy. Actually, four. I'm sorry. We have four blogs. Uh, Rebecca, of course, has her Skeptic blog, Memoir of Skeptic. We're just Skeptic now, by the way. Just Skeptic? Okay. Uh-huh. I have yeah. uh, my personal blog, Neurologica, so check that out. The Skeptic's Guide collectively has the Rogues Gallery, which has a daily entry by one of the uh, one of the rogues, plus a, plus a, um, a couple of other... Uh, skeptics who blog with us, including Mike LaSalle, who runs SGUFans.net, and John Blumenfeld, who uh, is part of the NES. And the latest blog, Science-Based Medicine, uh, which of course provided the inspiration for Rebecca's crap-based medicine. <laughs> which uh, still so- makes me giggle. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as it makes you giggle, it's worth it. Uh, so yeah, so Science-Based Medicine is, uh, we have, there are five physicians who blog on there, and uh, we're getting more guest submissions all the time. Uh, it's actually going quite well, and quite a vibrant uh, discussion is going on in the comment sections of that blog, so check it out. And uh, I would like to also point out that we have posted the sixth episode of SGU 5x5, and that's going very well as well. So this this typically gets posted up either... Um, Sometime on Tuesday, it's been getting posted, just the way our schedules have been working out. So it's a, it's a five to six minute, very brief podcast covering one topic, something to keep you going uh, during the week while you're waiting for the full um, Skeptic's Guide to come out. 
So check that out as well. You can get to that from, of course, our website. And it is now fully functional in iTunes. So if you tried to find it in iTunes when it first came out and you couldn't find it, it is now fully there in iTunes and you can find it and and, uh, subscribe to it as usual. Thank you guys again for joining me. Always a pleasure. No, thank you, Steve. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.